but uh, there's a uh, there's a saying in, in in AA which I'm very active in that talks about we're as sick as our secrets and this is a secret that I kept for 35 years you know I didn't tell anyone and um, and I wasn't even fully aware of it you know that's that's how powerful the secret is that you just life just you just keep coasting through life and you don't realize the mistakes you're making but but the abuse stayed with me you know this uh, this scar stays with you because I was a little kid I was a child when this happened and uh, and it and it didn't heal until many many years later hi I'm Mark Williams former quarterback at King's College Wilkesbury Pennsylvania and today you have the pleasure of listening to the heads and tails podcast Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week I'm excited to bring you a different kind of episode with uh, Mark Williams, uh, who was a former East Hampton High School quarterback where he led his team to a county championship in 1973. He then went on to play quarterback at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Uh, but he's also the victim of sexual abuse and also a survivor of sexual abuse. And he, he currently serves as a forensic social worker, um, which kind of is, is, goes along those lines of his experiences and how he's ultimately healed from those experiences. Uh, but today I'm excited to kind of have Mark on here on the podcast to talk about some toughness and masculinity uh, topics that I'm sure will come up after we hear his story. And a good friend of ours, George uh, Muha, uh, introduced us, uh, and I think he, he had nothing but great things to say about you, Mark, so I'm excited to, to get this thing started. So um, I know you have an incredible story, and there's so many different places that we could probably start, but I guess let's let's start off with, uh, like, how old were you when you were first uh, sexually uh, abused? Okay, well, thank you for, well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to share my a little bit of my story and and, uh, and that you and I share a friendship with George Muha. Yeah, it's the kind of stuff that people don't talk about in society, yeah. especially not in sports either. So I think it's good to yeah to talk about it. I was actually 13 when I was first abused, um, and I think um, it's kind of a classic story in some ways. My dad died um, as a result of his participation in the uh, Korean War. He was. Um, in Nevada during the, <coughs> excuse me, nuclear testing. And you think about that today, everything is going on with North Korea and, I mean, we're still talking about this extraordinary issue. But my dad was a young kid, 21, 22 years old, uh, drafted, you know, um, 1951. And his tour of duty was actually in Nevada. And they were doing all the nuclear testing. Okay. Anyway, the long and short of that is that he was exposed to a lot of ionizing radiation. And in 1968, he died of acute leukemia uh, because of that uh, history of being exposed to the radiation. Wow. And I was only 12. He had just turned 40. And um, so that was my, you know, kind of a very traumatic experience to lose him that, you know. And... Um, and I remember, him, you know, I was playing Little League even at that time. 
you know, and I was pretty good in sports and, um, and he didn't, you know, he was in the hospital back in those days, people stayed in the hospital, um, for months, you know, there wasn't like uh, managed care today. Throughout their treatments, you're throughout saying. Throughout their right? treatment, yeah. yeah. So he passed in December of 68 and I was 12, just turned 12. So about a year, not a, quite a year later, my mother was kind of, um, hanging around with this guy um, who was about 30 and my mother was a young widow at 38 and um, and he was a school teacher he wasn't teaching me but he would come over to the house and they would you know they drink together they smoke cigarettes and you know but what I didn't realize all along that time that he was really grooming me you know and and um, you know kind of watching me and I was vulnerable you know, I just lost a father. And um, and soon after my 13th birthday, and, and uh, you know, almost, a year, almost a year later after my father died, this guy, um, you know, managed to, and he was living, a, you know, he had his own place, and he managed to, you know, he was taking care of me that day and, um, you know, brought me to his house. And he, had, you know, literally got me drunk and, and sexually abused me. And... Wait, so this was a priest? No, this was a teacher. Teacher, okay. Yeah, this was a teacher. Priest happened later. Oh, okay. Yeah, but this was my first experience of being sexually abused. At and, 13 years old. Yeah, and this was a teacher. Um, elementary school teacher, and not in the district I was in, but that's what his profession was. Gotcha. Um, you said he was like kind of helping your mom out with Well, stuff, they or? were kind of, they weren't really romantically involved, I don't think. Right. They were, uh, but, you know, she was lonely and he was kind of uh around as far as a um a friend but uh little did i know that he had um he had his sights really on me okay you know and uh and i was just uh a, you know a vulnerable kid so do you remember what your thoughts were like after that experience like did you immediately like try to hide it or were you ashamed of it like what were your f emotions were going through you at that point in time well, my immediate, it was, it was, um, when I think back all these years later, it was, it was horrific, but I was so numb and so, um, I didn't really have any sense of being ashamed or, cause I was just, you know, you know, barely early adolescent and I was just like, uh, you know, really, um, I would say saddened, you know, when I look back. Um, and kind of like really out of sorts, like I didn't know what to do. But the one thing that I did do from that night forward was that I drank. From the yeah. time you were 13? 13, until I was 48 uh, when I, I um, gave up drinking and had my second DWI. Um, you know, and, and that was a tough, uh, you know, <laughs> that was a tough thing to go through. But a blessing now, 13 years later, being sober. Right, it's um, but, impressive. But the the um, um, the abuse started it all. Started the drinking. Started the uh, a lot of things. Confusion about life. So, like, how did you know to go to alcohol? Like after that experience, to kind of numb the pain. Like, well, the fact is that there was something about that particular evening that I was I was. Um, attracted to alcohol i mean i was i was abused and al i was drunk because he got me drunk 
and and I liked the feeling. And I also I realized many years later now that I was I also had a you know genetic disposition to alcohol because there was alcoholism in my family background. You know, my mother um, certainly was an alcoholic, and um, and that and her drinking really escalated after losing our my father, her husband. And now, you know, literally, you know, I think back now, he too drank, you know, and, you know, maybe some of that was um, war-related relationship to, you know, you know, what all that was about and the trauma that he experienced. Um, I don't know. But um, I do know that I got the gene as well uh, on top of the traumatic experience. Right. You know. So that coupled, yeah, makes yeah. for a... And alcohol just, and alcohol just... It's what they call, but you know, alcoholism. They they say is a progressive illness, and and a lot of a lot of young people start early, you know, just like the opiate ad- ad- epidemic today. I mean, and it and it progresses. You don't realize that it progresses, right? And sports. You know, I I played. I I, I look back. I don't even know how I <laughs> I was able to function pretty well yeah so i was gonna ask you so i'm like so you're 13 and you're drinking yeah yeah i'm like where does sports come into play during this time in your life yeah well sports was an outlet um and was um you know i was i was good athlete again i as i said earlier i played little league uh, and i played um you know there was um football wasn't as organized as it was in your you know today or even you know 20 years ago where you had these smaller leagues, you know, where I grew up, um, it was more pickup games with kids. And, um, and I really didn't organize football, really didn't become part of my life until freshman high school. Um, up until then, um, it was really just, again, pickup games out in the yard or the playground when it came to uh, playing football. But there was some coaches in that freshman year that recognized that uh, I had a very good arm and that I was, um, you know, kind of, and they, they kind of, you know, I was kind of targeted for them to be, uh, you know, coached early on freshman year and then, and then you know, through the, my four years of, of playing football. I didn't realize it at the time, but they certainly, you know, those, those were, you know, they were adult men. They knew that I had just lost my father, and and in some ways maybe they were really looking out for me too, and kind of taking me under their wing, and so sports became a tremendous outlet. Um, I wasn't even aware of all the feelings that I, you know, and that that I that I was drinking. How often? Every day. Like before school, after school, both. Uh, mostly after. Okay. Yeah, mostly after. And and then certainly on weekends with parties, um, and um, you know even if it was a, a you know a drink of scotch or something, I would I mean I just I take it you know, and and it just progressed um, to a point where it became just just part of me. But I was in I I had absolutely buried the the abuse stuff, although that relationship continued with this teacher. That's what I was going to ask, like when you. Went to the alcohol like every day. Yeah. Did you like have the thought of the abuse like in your mind? I think I just buried it. You know, I it really wasn't in my mind, but I was I was um, I was cornered, really, and I felt I felt um, and this is what victims feel 
you know, when I, you know, the work that I do now is that you, you don't know how, you don't know where to go. You're, you're just, you're so young, you're looking up to an authority figure. Um, I was, I certainly was hurting because I had lost my father. You're looking for a male figure, father figure, if you will. And, um, and that's what I got, I was just part of, you know, and it was, uh, so my thoughts, developmentally, I wasn't even thinking about um, much of anything other than that I was just caught in this trap, you know, when I think about now. And then subsequently, I got, you know, involved. Um, I was even vulnerable with this uh, priest um, that was in the parish that I was in. And um, and then that that took off to another, you know, situation of, of abuse and clerical abuse which they call it now you know clerical sexual abuse of, of uh, which is you know a uh, big part of you know the scandal in the, in the roman catholic church um and that occurred as well you know starting around when i was 15 you know for a couple of years and um so this one went on for a couple of years you're saying mm-hmm. gotcha yeah yeah until you know until i finally left and went to college um and I, I and i look back on it i don't i sports was there as an outlet and but there were times and i think back football i don't know if it's the nature of football in the game because it's a team effort but i had a hard time playing high school baseball at times i you know and I think it was really an unconscious thing because I was a really good baseball player going through Little League, Babe Ruth. Um, but there were times in high school baseball where I would kind of be drifting. Because you're, yeah, if you're left to your own mental devices in baseball, it doesn't really work out well for you. The game is not as fast. You know, it's yeah, you have uh, more time to think. It's a different type of game. And I was a catcher mainly, but I played, you know, some infield and, and uh, you have more time to think. And, and, and sometimes I just, I made errors. Of, you know, I look back on it now. I think it was a very deep unconscious thing that it was, as I was aging through my high school years, it was beginning to hit me, you know, where I was getting in touch with um, what I had gone through. But the drinking also increased, and the drinking increased where I just numbed myself right. to, to everything. Yeah, so like when you were walking out on the field, like you had a lot of success in football, and you just mentioned, uh, you know, in high school, and you just mentioned how baseball. Like I completely relate to that because, not that I was sexually abused as a kid, but just in terms of struggling mentally in baseball, because you have so much time to think about what could go wrong, what else is going on in the world. Like it takes like an extreme amount of focus to really be dialed in. So. When you walked out on the field, the football field or the baseball field, like, were you thinking about some of the abuse that you were going through or, and had gone through? I think, I think, to, I think now when I look back on it, I think the answer is yes and no. I think I wasn't consciously thinking about it, but I am convinced that unconsciously I was, that unconsciously that that shame was building up inside me, that that it was affecting me. Right. That that I was confused. Um, I wasn't putting my finger on it. Again, alcohol was numbing me. Um, 
growing up, the hormones. I mean, all those things. I mean, as early adolescence, adolescence, and then dealing with no father at home. My mother was was um, really having a hard time. She was drinking a lot. Um, she was also, um, you know, a violent person physically. You know, she to you to me and my sister. Yeah. So there was a lot going on growing up in in those teenage years. And so to answer your question, no, I really, I don't think I really was thinking about it much at all. But I think, again, on a very deep unconscious level, I think I was thinking about it a lot. Right. I think it was there. I mean, it was like a demon that was kind of inside me. Okay. Um, and that's why I kind of liked football. Football, I loved the contact, even though um, <laughs> I was kind of old school. And, and, you know, you see quarterbacks today, you know, they slide not to, to avoid a hit. I used I'm, a, to, I'm a proponent of that. Yeah. I used to run out of bounds. You know, you, you, in the old days, you see quarterbacks who would scramble and they would run out of, just run out of bounds. Yeah. You know, you know? I also am a, am a proponent for running out of bounds. Yeah. So I did that a lot. But there was something about the physical contact, the physicality of the game that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And and I loved the strategy of the, of the game as far as, you know, being the quarterback and, and reading defenses and all that. And somehow, somewhere, I was able to do that, even though everything that I'd gone through. I'm not sure why, but I do know that football provided that. That outlet. That outlet for me, and which was exciting. It was We had a great team. You know, we won the championship in 73. We were undefeated in JV. You know, when I think back to my JV years, um, when I played sophomore, when we, we were you know, through freshman, that J, that team was twenty-one and zero. I mean, we didn't lose a game. Yeah, you guys were no, good no, from the beginning. Years. Yeah. Yeah. So then we took that into our, you know, junior senior year, and then eventually in the senior year won the championship. So it was just a, it was an interesting, exciting time. Yeah. As far as being around a bunch of guys that, they had no idea what I had gone through. But I do recall a couple other guys though. It was interesting. A couple other guys had lost their dads early as well. So I bonded with them uh, on a very personal level. But no one, you didn't tell anyone and no one told you anything? No. I didn't tell anyone until 35 years later. Wow, that's crazy. It's a long time. That was one of my questions. Yeah. When was the first time you asked, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, I think it's cool with football because I, I felt a similar way in that I was such a head case in baseball that in football you almost don't have time to think. And I think in your situation, that was probably why you liked it so much, too. It's because, like, you don't have time to think about all the other crap that's going on. Like, either you're thinking of the play, the coverage, this, like, trying not to get your ass kicked. Yeah. You know, one of those. Uh, so I think there's something to be said about that. Yeah, and I get – I sometimes and, – and some of my – you know, this is probably related, but I was a little bit of a troublemaker. I was kind of like, you know, I would call audibles. I mean <laughs> – Without the coach, uh, <laughs> yeah. coach's input. Yeah, and then, uh, and then, I you know, the, towards the end of the first half of the championship game in '73, uh, we were up. I think it was six nothing right before the half. But the uh, wide receiver was a really good guy, very fast, <clears throat> and he just said, "Look, I can beat that guy in the corner." And uh, the coach had already sent in a play, you know, to run out the clock and just you know hand it off. So I called an audible, and and uh, and this guy Larry, Larry Payne was his name. He beat the guy at a flag pattern to the end zone, and I threw it. It was about you know about 35 yard strike, and you know we went up 13 nothing um, instead of six uh, with the field, you know with the extra point. 
and the coach, I walk off the field, he just shaking his head. <laughs> well, it's because it made him look good. <laughs> made him look good. If yeah. you didn't make it, you might might yeah. not be so happy with it. But yeah. uh, that's cool. So, so did the experience with the priest? Yeah. Did that change? Like I, I think I, George told me that you came from a very religious background. You yeah. still, you still are very religious. Yep. Did that change your relationship with God and like the Catholic Church, like at the time? It's a great question. It, it, um, I would say it complicated my relationship with the Catholic Church because the Church. It's 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 hard to explain, but the Church for me, like sports, was also an outlet that I found even with what I was going through with this priest. Um, he was also very good to me in many ways, uh, cared for me, even though what he did was a violation. And I look back on that now and, and, um, and I've, and I've healed, you know, and I've forgiven him, you know, and that's, that's a hard thing to do for victims. But I also feel that survivors who go on with their lives are able to get to that place of forgiveness. Um, so it was complicated. It's hard to explain. There was something greater than than uh, him or me, or that was that was still attractive to to have a connection to church and to God, and and um, and I look back on it, and, and I'm I'm glad that I I didn't run from it. You know, many many people who who turn away from the church, whether it's Catholic or Protestant or Jewish, or you know, because of some trauma. You know, they never go back. You know, they just, they're so angry. For some reason, I was able to somehow stay with it and um, and let go of that. Um, but it was complicated. It wasn't an easy journey. Um, but I went to Catholic school, you know, for eight-year parochial school, so I was still part of that. Um, there were some other priests that were really involved in my life that were also um very loving very you know more like mentors not abusive <clears throat> so there was another side that i saw that was really attractive to me and um and then going through my father's funeral and all that you know and, and the church and i think back on that you know there was a lot of a lot of things that impacted me you know and uh, so i i didn't feel like I had to run away from it, um, and I kind of ran towards it still, but broken. But I wasn't really in fully in touch with how broken I was right. until, until many years later. Uh, and eventually you went to King's College to play mm-hmm. football. Yep. So can you talk about that transition? And, I mean, you're still going from – you're still going to, like, a religious school again. Right. So right. did you have any reservations, or was that just, like, how how it was? Like you... No, it's, it's funny uh, – the high, I went to parochial uh, elementary middle school. East Hampton was a, was a public school, so I went to public high school. And um, but there was a guidance counselor at uh, at East Hampton High School that um, he had five children. He knew my father had passed away. Um, he really, you know, he knew that I wanted to play some small football, but, you know, get into a, you know, more academic, you know, decent school. And he was originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania, where the University of Scranton is, and then King's is nearby and other schools. 
And uh, I think it was like junior year of high school, um, around Thanksgiving, he got permission from my mother. And he, with his wife and his five kids, they took me to have actually have Thanksgiving with his family. And he, he said he would take me around to these schools. And King's um, really had a great program, and they also offered more money from a from a financial aid package. Um, and um, there was something about King's that it was just really good fit for you. Good fit, yeah. And they had a pretty decent football program. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't Notre Dame, but it was, uh, it was good, you know. And I and and Pennsylvania high school. It was like Texas and and Florida. I mean, they're just powerhouses when it came to to football. So I was kind of this hot dog New York kid, but I learned a lot. And um, they were just uh, salt of the earth guys, hard nose, good football players, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So when you got to Kings, where were you at, like mentally and emotionally? with everything that you've gone through, because now you're kind of removed from that priest, right? Yep. Um, yep. But you still are not telling people, obviously, because you said it yeah. took 35 years to, yeah. to yeah. do that. Yeah, I'm still drinking. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, again, as I said earlier, alcoholism is a progressive disease. So and are you drinking by yourself? Drank, drank a lot by myself. I mean, I would drink with other students, but I drank a lot alone. And I go, I drink in my room. I go out to a bar and drink alone. And that was, you know, that's something that stayed with me for a long time, even through marriage and raising kids and corporate jobs and all that. I never let go of drinking alone. Um, And what I was able to, many, many years later, tie that to, was the you know the confusion around sexuality the confusion around being ashamed uh, you know you know numbing myself and the loneliness that was really part of what i had gone through even though people would see me as a pretty social guy pretty engaging um articulate you know did fairly well in school played played ball but but uh, there's a uh, there's a saying in 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 AA which I'm very active in that talks about we're as sick as our secrets, and this is a secret that I kept for 35 years. You know, I didn't tell anyone, and um, and I wasn't even fully aware of it. You know, that's that's how powerful the secret is that you just life just you just keep coasting through life and you don't realize <laughs> the mistakes you're making, but but the abuse stayed with me you know this uh this scar stays with you because i was a little kid i was a child when this happened and um and it and it didn't heal until many many years later but um so but i got involved with kings i got involved with uh you know i I really got more involved my first uh, real girlfriend and you know, and sexual experience with a girl and all that, you know, you, you know, all that stuff happened. And, right. and, um, and, you know, I realized that, you know, Hey, I'm a, I'm a heterosexual guy. I'm not a homosexual man, you know, even though I had gone, you through, had those experiences. So you realized that I realized that, you know, I, that, that I put, 
that I put two and two together. I realized that came to, because that was I was confused by that. There was a part of me that realized that I really was confused by that. That you know what you know what am I? You know what is that? You know, and uh, I mean to this day I have a lot of gay friends. I, I'm very open to, but I realized that I was not gay, and that you know I, I was able to have relationships with women in, in college and 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 beyond. You know, and I I just celebrated my 36th wedding anniversary, so I've, <laughs> I've been around you know, you know, um, a long time with that. But that intimacy that I had to get in touch with, you know, I had that that I was aware of. I I I was able to somehow come to terms with that. Um, I mean, that's something I struggled with from those early experiences. Yeah, I, w- I wasn't sure. I was so uncertain. Right. You know. Yeah. But that was almost kind of like forced upon you, I guess. Yeah. Um, so did any of these experiences ever make you feel like you were like less of a man? Like you said, you know, obviously there's stigmas in the world about being gay, straight, whatever. Yeah. Um, and an experience like what you went through, I could see it making, you know, you feel like less of a man. Um, is that how you felt? And like, what was that like being on a football team? when you know that toughness and masculinity culture is like at its highest yeah you know it's funny i didn't feel that i didn't feel like less than a man i did feel that i covered up very very well what was really going on with me and wherever that inner strength came from to just kind of forge ahead you know maybe that's the masculine side of us as far as you know i got to suck this up and just do it and um and not let anybody into what I was really going through or had gone through. But we'll see what that yeah. eventually led to. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah. So, but I, uh, so I was good at covering up. I was good at, at lying. I was good at just, you know, uh, you know, again, not letting people really understand, you know, you know, everything about me. And so the sports and the football in particular allowed me that, opportunity to just kind of escape you know i mean it was you know as you know football it's very structured you know you got 11 guys on the field you got plays you got you know formations and and then a quarterback in that position you gotta you know intellectually you gotta know a lot as far as um, you know the game plan so i just immersed myself in that and it just took me away from whatever else i was going through um for a period of time you know, I mean, I wasn't a, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna be in the pros. So, yeah, exactly. Football, so I wasn't gonna play twenty years. Football ends for everyone. Yeah. At end, some point. And it ended. You know, and then and then, then when it ended, I I had to find other things to do. And you know, I was always athletic, so I you know I played golf and I played you know I I I did a lot of running back then when I was younger. I you know I just I I would go for miles and run and all that. Right. Take myself away from uh, you know. So the, and there's a lot of, you know, science to that too, as far as psychology, as far as that physical exercise. So I did a lot of that. And I look back uh, to um, deal with not only physiologically, but psychologically. Right. Uh, One of my favorite podcasters just wrote a book called The Mask of Masculinity. And he was actually sexually abused as a kid too. Mm. Uh, His name's Lewis House. And... He talks he talks about how kind of football was like a mask for, you know, covering up what he went through as a kid. Mm-hmm. And 
I, based off of what you've said, it, it was kind of a similar thing for you as well. Uh, but when you were in your transition to life after football, how did the removal of that mask um, kind of affect you? Like, did you start drinking more? What was like the transition to life after after sports for you? Like, yeah. the um, um, the transition really was. I, I, the answer to your question, yes, I did drink more, and and the drinking um, increased over the years, where it. Um, you know, you hear the term functional alcoholic. I was functional. I mean, I I raised to help you know, raise four children and and had good jobs and 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 all that. Um, but um, but the progression of it was you know eventually was catching up with me. You know, um, some major things happened: losing a house. You know, going into bankruptcy. Uh, there's some, you know, some yeah. pretty, pretty strong red flags that there was no question that alcohol was part of, you know, and and it wasn't until many years later and the freedom of letting go of that alcohol and being arrested uh, was that when I look back on it now it was an extraordinary blessing to, and that uh, that I could have killed myself many many times, you know, driving, drunk or killed someone else. And I've known many, many people, um, not many, but certainly a fair amount who have done that, you know, because I've, I've, I've met them, you right. know. And um, so I, uh, the transition, it's kind of a two-edged sword. The transition for me into some of the successes of life, alcohol helped me because I don't think I was... I was really able until I was older to deal with the uh, the nature of of what that abuse had done to me. It wasn't until and you know this is kind of the God moment thing for me too and my connection to church and spirituality. It wasn't until I was older and mature enough, I think, to really even begin to be ready to to deal with it, you know, in a much in a mature way, um, where I can, you know today articulate um and you know what it really was about in me and how it lived in me for, for all these years and uh and to be able to speak about it now and be able to help others and to advocate and to uh, you know and even you know we talked earlier before the podcast about you know some of the you know the talk i gave out at penn state you know when that whole thing happened with uh, sandusky and paterno and i spoke to the football alumni association What'd you say to them? I basically told them about my experience, and and I said that it's very common to cover up, and very common to deny that um, this sort of thing can happen or was happening right under your, you know, you know your program, and it, and I have to tell you, I, I um, it hit a chord with some of them. But some of them didn't like what I was saying, because they they understandably thought Paterno was was this god figure. And uh, but I'm convinced that he knew. And that he looked the other way, I, you know, maybe to his credit, he brought it up the food chain and and he he talked to 
the administration and, um, you know, and, and some of his, you know, higher ups at Penn State. But a, a man in his position could have done more. There's yeah, because no Penn State is Joe Paterno. You yeah. Know, or Joe Paterno is Penn State. Yeah, yeah. But he knew the, he knew the man that Sandusky was. Uh, he knew uh, he had heard about him. Um, and it was it took the courage of that assistant coach. Um, uh, his name escapes me at the moment, Tim something. But he, he's the one that really saw what happened in that shower and, and tried to do something about tried it. Tried to finally do something about it. And that was the graduate assistant, right? Who like witnessed everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and had the courage. But it's hard when you're. You're in a situation, and look what's happening in Hollywood right now with Harvey Weinstein, or look what happened in Fox News with Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly. I mean, you're in those situations. You know, the you know the authority, power. It's it's hard to speak out, but yet um, when you do, and you feel the freedom. Um, and you're given that permission to do it. Um, it. It's an amazing feeling, you know. And 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 what I've learned through all this too is that I'm not unique. It is, it is real. Sexual abuse crosses all stratas of of um, of our society, not only in sports, um, but you know, in in uh, in the entertainment business, in 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 uh, the news industry, uh, corporate world, military. There's been a lot of you know a lot of written in about the military and, and the abuse in the military. Certainly in the church. Um, so it's uh, it's something that you know not only I as a young person, a young boy or young girl has gone through, but many have, and um, and it's very very sad, and it does linger. It stays with you for a long time, and, and you know. And I was just. I really feel very, very fortunate that I was able to um, wrestle the demon, you know, with a lot of help from, you know, once once I was finally able to be honest about it. Right. While we're kind of on the topic of Penn State and the military yeah. and Hollywood and people in authority, you know, it seems like there's kind of common themes throughout each of these, like, environments that, that happen. So can you kind of talk about, like, why I mean Penn State for example like why it shouldn't be that surprising that something like this could happen and does that culture of masculinity and toughness in the sport of football do you think that that had something to do with the cover-up of everything also uh I do I think I think there is um there is a, a societal norms that we you know unfortunately live with and I think what you I think you're hitting the nail on the head as far as this whole idea of masculinity and uh, and toughness and that um, you know and, and you you know you you fall in line you know you 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 gotta you know just you know shut up and do it you know sort of thing and um, you want to be on this team then you you know here's what you got to do you know and um, and here are the rules and here's the regulations and all that and with that Winning and money brings a whole nother layer, you know, in Penn State, you know, huge Big Ten, you know, powerhouse, right? And, you know, Paterno. I was there this weekend. I just got some ice cream. <laughs> yeah. You're out. And look, and Paterno, 
you know, like, uh, you know, a lot of you know, big name coaches. Um, I mean, he was in bed with a lot of people, you know, you know, I remember watching, um, his, um, uh, funeral on TV, you know, and one of the speakers was Phil Knight, you know, from Nike. Yeah. You know, and I remember at, the, you know, um, it was some months after that, that Phil Knight changed his tune. Um, and I remember writing him a letter, in fact, and he got, I got a really nice handwritten note from him, um, you know, basically saying that, you know, he misread this, his friend Joe Paterno, you know, and it had to take more of the investigation coming out, more of the allegations coming out. Uh, but you think about that, you know, not only Penn State, but you know, look at all the teams that have the Nike swish on them, right? It's all about money and branding and power. So with that, can it mask uh, issues like sexual abuse of a, of a predator like Sandusky and, and it be covered up? Absolutely. And it happened. I mean, also think about what does that do to your brand? You know, like that's probably why they wanted to cover it up because – you know, how can you promote a, a football program in a national powerhouse with that kind of like attached to your to your name? So in some ways you could see the motive behind trying to hide things. But I'm a big believer in like nothing ever good comes out of hiding things, especially stuff like that. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and um, and. And it, and what happens is it just it festers itself and it's like a it's like a it's like a cancer that um, and and left untreated eventually it's going to erupt and that's what happened you know eventually you know this, like you said that assistant coach and and others spoke out and then it, and it just it mushroomed to a point where you know once they started and then of course what was discovered were you know, the email trail and, and all that. And, 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 and the president of the university was aware and, and the athletic director was aware and, and one of the chief administrators were aware that there was something, you know, that was going on and they didn't take it to the next level. And all they had to do was make a phone call to the authorities, you know, and, um, and you know, and, and turn it over, turn it over to, you know, the police and, and let them investigate. So how could, I mean, Penn State is obviously kind of rebuilding their program. Yep. Uh, and they're doing a decent job of it, at least on the football field. But who knows what they've done to actually, like, address the root cause of the issue that let all this these terrible things happen in their own facilities. Yeah. So how can you, like, I guess what's your advice to, like, leagues, teams, programs, uh, athletic departments – or the military, or these places where these kind of things kind of commonly happen. Like, what's your advice to creating an environment where, you know, people aren't afraid to say that or take it to the next level and tell the authorities and, and stuff like that? Like, how do you kind of take the power away from those who, you know, do these horrible things to vulnerable populations? You know, it's not a perfect um, world. 
but the best thing you can do, I think, like in, in many, many things, is education. And I think that the, um, the more you can enforce and foster zero tolerance policies and, and have educational programs and, you know, and, uh, <coughs> and really make a commitment to um, teaching sexual harassment, for instance, you know, um, to students that are coming in and to young teachers. And it's part of the orientation program right from the get-go. I think uh, will go a long way. Will it absolutely prevent it in total? I don't think so. It's always, you know, it's just like you can't prevent concussions. <laughs> yeah, it's always going to be there in some way. But you can really make a dent. Um, you know, going back to the Catholic Church for a moment, I mean, that's happening right now. Uh, Pope Francis uh, in 2014 established uh, a commission called the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. And it's headed up by Cardinal Sean O'Malley in Boston. And, Bo and O'Malley came to Boston soon after the whole scandal broke. I don't know if you saw the movie Spotlight, which was about, you know, the whole scandal and, and how everything started in, um, in Boston as it you know um you know where and and realized that it wasn't just boston but it was a worldwide issue and um and maybe four percent i think i think that's four percent of all roman catholic priests worldwide might have some type of abusive behavior which doesn't sound like a lot but there's not many roman catholic priests worldwide compared to other sort of industries so it is a lot you know um uh, but to Pope Francis's credit, he ha he established this commission where they're they're really looking at it at a global level to um, make people accountable, make parishes around the world accountable, bishops accountable. I mean, there's still critics that not enough is being done, but um, the church moves at a snail's pace. You know, <laughs> thousands of years for things to change. But I think, to his credit, and he's only been uh, in the papacy, I think, five years. I mean, he's he he took the bull by the horns and and, uh, and established this commission, and they're and they're making a dent. So I think programs like Penn State, Ohio State, uh, University of Miami, these huge, and you know, even right in our backyard, Rutgers. I mean, all these you know, big universities can do some similar things, as far as educating. Um, faculty, educating coaches, any anybody that's going to have a relationship with young persons, uh, even though young persons in college is a little bit older, but still uh, they're vulnerable. And Sandusky was, you know, he had this special camp that he had, you know, besides being a coach for Penn State. And, and he had a lot of prominent uh, sports guys on his board of directors. You know, and um, and he he snowed them, you know, and um, but I got to believe that people people had a sense that he was not, you know, you know, there was something more to this guy. Right. You know, did you ever confront your predators? The the teacher uh, that the teacher is still alive and uh, I have not confronted him and it's something that I, I have uh, I've had a big fear to do quite honestly um, I don't know I don't know what I would say to him 
Um, I haven't seen him in um, over 30 years. Um, the priest uh, passed away, and so I never had an opportunity to do that as well. Although I did have an opportunity, believe it or not, on his um, 100th birthday, I actually went to the uh, cemetery where he's buried and um, and let it go. You know, I basically expressed to him my anger, but I also expressed to him that I forgave, forgave him. Because for me, I had to go on. I had to let it go. Um, I don't know if that opportunity is going to come with this teacher someday. It might. But... But I've confronted him in other ways. I've confronted him not face to face, but I've confronted him by talking to others about him. I've uh, confronted it in the rooms of AA to be able to share it. Um, and with that, I've brought it's brought me a lot of healing. And I and I've and and I've largely forgiven him as well. And just because I've had to let it go. Um, but if he walked in. Right now to this room, I don't know what I, I really don't know what I would do. Right, I mean, yeah. I wasn't you know I was I was a quarterback. I wasn't a defensive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a linebacker to kill somebody. But uh, I can imagine it would be a awkward. It would interaction. be a good word. It would be very awkward. Yeah, it would be very awkward. Uh, can you kind of talk about some of uh, the low points throughout this process of trying to get to the point where you can get to a point of forgiveness and stuff like that. Like, I remember you said that you were arrested um, yep. at one point in time, and George was telling me that you had, you had developed a limp. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of talk about that sure. part of your story? Yeah. Well, when I was arrested, um, it was my second DWI, and I was arrested uh, coming out of a – I blacked out. I had no recollection of leaving this bar that I was at driving about five miles and being pulled over, you know, and, um, and it was, you know, you know, a lot of cops, 10, 15 policemen, different, you know, county cops and, and, uh, town cops and state trooper. And, and I realized that the gig was up, you know, that something, you know, that, that this was it, you know? So, and I, as I said, I, I drank daily for 35 years. So I, um, I was certainly addicted. I was um, functional, but alcohol was just—it was like you know taking a drug for diabetes. You, you know that I was, you know, I lived on alcohol from the point of that was just as much as I would brush my teeth every day. I'd have a drink, or you know, I would have five drinks a day. You know, it was just and, and so I, my 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 body got so used to alcohol being in my system. I stopped cold turkey. I didn't go to rehab. I didn't detox. So subsequently, I had some very, very strange, um, you know, peculiar reaction, and which included very, very hard withdrawal. I wound up being hospitalized um, for eight days, and um, I really was really I fell into a very deep depression, and I didn't have alcohol to take care of me anymore. Started to go to AA. I really didn't get it right away. I, I went to some counseling. Um, a lot of different di doctors put me on all kinds of medications. 
which I think really screwed me up. I'd never been on anything, any psychotropic medication in my life. Um, never took painkillers, none of that stuff, even with sports injuries and all that. That's a whole other topic, but I did. <laughs> um, I took Advil or, or extra strain Tylenol, but that was it. Alcohol was my drug of choice. I didn't really use other drugs. I didn't smoke pot. I smoked pot a little bit in college, you know, but not a lot at all. Alcohol was what I, I loved. So I removed that from me, and I was discharged from the hospital. And right before I was discharged from the hospital, I, I really started to develop this kind of very strange, peculiar limp where I was actually dragging my right leg. Was it painful? It was painful. I would actually feel pain coming down my leg. I would feel pain in my penis. I would feel pain in my abdomen. It was kind. Of, it was really bizarre. And I thought, geez, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I may have cancer. What is this? <laughs> and uh, I went to all kinds of doctors. I had MRIs, and I mean, it was like nothing. It was, you know, and, you know, it was more in my head. And I had, uh, and again, I was subsequently being given all this medication. So it was about a year later, and I, again, and again, I was a pretty good athlete. I, uh, one of the things that I took up over the years was um, long-distance cycling. You know, I, touring, I had a touring bike. i go out with the groups, and we go, riding 50 60 miles i mean i gave up everything i didn't really put on weight because i wasn't really eating you know i was i was really depressed um but i i couldn't walk i mean i literally would fall down i would uh, drag my leg it was really strange for almost a whole year i finally went to the neurological institute at uh, columbia university medical center to where I went to school and um, for my master's, and I wanted to go to the best. I had good insurance, and um, I remember seeing this neurologist, and I had sent him the MRIs and everything. And he looked at me and he says, "I want you to come out in the hallway, and I want you to walk down this corridor, and I'm going to watch you, and and then you come back." So I walked down this corridor, maybe 40 feet. And and came back, and I'm dragging my leg going down and coming back. And he waited for me very patiently, and it took me, which would take normal walking, a minute, right? It took me 20 minutes. And he waited there. And I was exhausted. And I sat back in his office. He looked at me, and he says, there's nothing wrong with you. He said, physically. He said, everything, there's a lot wrong with you psychologically. And he said to me, without missing a beat, he says, you have what's called a conversion disorder. There's something you've never talked about. And it's manifesting itself in physio physiologically with your leg, your pain. And in other words, it's a very, very serious psychosomatic issue. And he says, I'm going to refer you to a psychiatrist here at Columbia who's an expert in the world in conversion disorder. And ironically, his has the same last name, Williams. He says, no relation. But he said, 
and you can't say, you're going to go see him. You're not, you're not going to say no. I said, his name was Dr. Paul Green. And uh, I said, Dr. Green, I'm all yours. I said, uh, I don't know what else to do. So I went to see Dr. Williams. Uh, within 48 hours, I had an appointment with him. And I you know, was still limping and you know, had the pain. And he was the first one out of all the doctors, besides Green, I mean, who recognized something. All these doctors I saw in New Jersey, and, and you know, I and mean, they were good people, but they didn't really know what was going on with me. And they just kept throwing medication at me. You know, not unlike, you know, football guys, you know, painkillers, right? You just, more and more oxy at these guys, right? I've done a ton of interviews with yeah. former NFL guys talking about that. Just more and more oxy, right? So Williams, he, I start to build a trust with him. He's gonna, he's weaning me off these medications, right? and uh, and he's really um, um, convincing me because of the trust that what I was experiencing, I wasn't making up, that it was real, that it re- truly was a conversion disorder. Something was going on, that my body was experiencing the pain, that what I was really experiencing psychologically. And about the same time, I had a, I had a very uh, bright, interesting guy who was sponsoring AA um, that I used to see, um, and I had lost my license for two years, so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't drive. Um, and um, this one day, I took a bus in from uh, into Morristown, New Jersey, and he said, "Why don't you meet me at the Green, and we'll take a walk, and we'll just." Uh, you know, talk about our alcoholic stories. So, and, and he was very patient too, and I'm dragging my leg and shuffling around. I'm walking, I, <laughs> I can't walk. I can't walk. And he just said to me, look, don't worry about it. Well, you know, and he's got this big dog and we're walking and then uh, he's telling stories, I'm telling the story. And then he says, you know, he says, uh, when was your first drink? And Kevin, I just, literally lost it i mean i just started to weep it all came back to me when my first drink was my first drink was that night by that teacher you know really was a rape you know really was that he took advantage of me and got me drunk molested me and i had never told anyone to that day to that day and believe it or not i almost walked normally after that. Seriously? Yeah. Like that very moment. That very moment. Because my demon I let let out because I I it was a conversion disorder. What I had was feeling all these years, buried unconsciously. Uh drinking numbed it. Now I'm I'm a year removed from drinking. I'm sober, sort of, you know. And not sober, you know, psychologically, <laughs> but no, no substance in me. So my body's kind of coming back, you know, into a more normalcy, if you will. And I finally got to see a psychiatrist who and a and a neurologist who who basically confirmed that hey, what you're feeling is real. It's uh, we're going to treat it. You know, we're going to remove all this medication. We're going to get you back, you know, you know, on a, on the right path, nutrition and everything. 
And then I met this. So at the time was just right for that question to be asked by a fellow alcoholic in AA. And Charlie was his name had, you know, like 15 years of sobriety. He was a you know very success, successful um, management consultant, traveled all over the world, you know. And um, and he asked the question, and he didn't realize what he had asked, because <laughs> you know, he said, "Well, he didn't understand why I was crying so much and what what." what and I just told him. And then when I shared with him what I had gone through, it was like this, I mean, it's a cliche, but this tremendous weight was lifted off my shoulders. Right. It's like, you know, I let it out. And I just, you know, and then, um, you know, I almost, I, I, I couldn't run a marathon, but I was almost walking normally. So you were married to your wife for how long? 36 years. Before you told her? Like she didn't know. You didn't. You literally told not a soul. Didn't tell her. Well, we were married when you know. So that's thirteen, uh, nearly fourteen years ago. So um, we were married. Um, you know, not quite a little over twenty years when she found out. You know, she came to the hospital to visit me. Obviously, every day for eight days when I was in the hospital. But it wasn't until um, I uh, told Charlie, and then that I could share that with her and others in my life, my children. Um, it's given me the opportunity to uh, write about it and write letters to the editor of the New York Times and Sports Illustrated because I've been able to get in touch with what I had gone through and that the the sexual abuse was connected. I mean, there are other factors, you know, growing up in an alcoholic family and other things, but the main fuel to what I had experienced was no doubt being abused. Right. Yeah. I, I was more asking like, yeah. y- like you needed to be prompted to like, to share that because you had suppressed it so much that it, it wasn't even almost like a memory for you because like you just like completely disregarded it until they asked that question when the first time you, you yeah. drank was, and then it all came up. So, yeah. and that's that's a great word. I the power of the mind. You know, there's there's no greater. I mean, you, I mean, you you suffered a tremendous concussion, and and how you came back. The power of the brain. The brain is. I mean, the most. I mean, the the organ that God has given us is no greater organ than the brain, the human brain. You know, and I learned that, and my brain suppressed that. 35 years and it wasn't until I was ready <laughs> that the brain kicked in again and said and, and of course connected to my emotions and everything else it's okay now to talk about it. right you know but can you but that's where my body and the pain you know and that's what conversion disorder is and you know and it's amazing you know and you you know I've I've read about it since and certainly I've talked to this psychiatrist who's a leading expert in the world on this uh, that my case is unique but there's a lot of very very fascinating cases of people who who experience things tremendous trauma in their lives and they and their body reacts you know they right. develop pain somewhere yeah it's a crazy story yeah they you know um do you, so I'm thinking like what did you learn from this experience? Just in, because 
in sports, you're constantly told to suck it up. You know, like you're always told to like suppress your emotions and you know don't show weakness or anything like that. Yeah. So, what has this experience taught you? Because obviously, it kind of came out in almost like a physical injury. Uh, that the audience, that people are, that athletes that are listening to this, who might be holding something in that they shouldn't, and even in my case, like I knew something was wrong with my head, yeah. but I was suppressing all of these feelings to, you know, so I didn't say anything. Yeah. So, what's your advice based off of what you've learned? Well, again, what I've learned and what I've experienced is that the truth does set you free. Um, honesty is the best policy, and it's an old cliche but it's true and and the freedom that comes with being transparent and the freedom that comes from being open and honest and real and genuine and the word that that I try to live by is being authentic I mean people that I experience in my life now more than ever I know they're authentic genuine people when they're honest when they cannot you know they're not um shading the truth or they're not you know they're not giving you all the goods as it were but they're just straight shooters you know that they're just telling you what's going on and that's the if there's anything that i've learned the most about that um is that is that um humility and and honesty really are are the qualities of 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 the authentic road. You know, I do a lot of uh, consulting now and I, I do some leadership stuff and I do some um, executive coaching, you know, and I and I talk about this. You know, greatest qualities of a leader are, are ones that I realize who are humble people realize that they can't do it alone. You know, you think about coaches, you know, head head football coaches. I mean, if they if they assemble the right assistants, you know, it's not all about them, and that and that just trickles onto the team, and then um, and it's a great metaphor for life. I wish I learned. I, I I wish I was younger when I learned it, but I'm glad that I still. <laughs> well, I'm hopefully, still, people I'm listen still, to I'm this. I'm still around. You know, hopefully, you're you're kind of changing the learning curve. Uh, yeah. yeah. For those who are listening, and when you were saying that, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite interviews to date was with uh, former NFL linebacker David Vibora. And he, I specifically remember him saying when you were when you were talking about uh, how he never trusts an unbroken person. Like anyone who acts like they have it all together are the people that you should stay away from. Because you're right, like they're not like straight shooters. So I think that's that was really great advice. Yeah. Uh, so can you before we kind of we're about yeah. to wrap up the interview here, but can you talk about what you're doing now yeah. uh, as the uh, forensic social worker? Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know. Um, I have, I've fallen into this, uh, you know, when I, when I got sick and, and, um, and, and, uh, I really, I couldn't really function well and I couldn't, I resigned from my, I had a big corporate job in, um, but I had trained as a clinical social worker many years ago, um, had a private practice and, um, and through some co connections over the last five years, I, um, I've kind of resurrected that and uh, and through uh, a church group that I was a part of I, I, I became very close to a defense attorney in New York City 
And this is a guy who got, you know, quite a story himself and how he came up from, you know, literally nothing in the Bronx and, you know, single parent family. And, and um, he's now a very successful defense attorney in the city. But he takes on really tough cases. He really believes in taking on tough cases. And when he learned, as I got to know him, that I was a clinical social worker by background, had done this type of work, he says, well, you know, would you be interested in helping me provide uh, psychosocial assessments for people that are that I'm defending? And I found, you know, I said, sure, that would be very interesting. I'd love to try to do that. And that just, that has materialized into, you know, not quite a full-time, I mean, I job, but it's it, it, uh, word of mouth. Um, I kind of made a name for myself in the city where a lot of defense attorneys are <coughs> using me to help what we call mitigate. So I'm a, I'm a mitigation specialist. And what I try to do is provide a human side to the story. And it could be a white-collar crime, could be a murder, could be a, a drug uh, sale or something, you know, a myriad of crimes and that people get in trouble for, you know. And uh, But what I found, just like myself, there's always a story behind the human person and where they came from, what happened to them. Um, why did they take a shortcut to get ahead, you know, why did they, you know, make a mistake? Um, and they got caught, you know, and, you know, and I'm working with federal cases, state cases, uh, which is, um, but I'll tell you just a very quick story and how my experience um, has helped me. And, you know, and, and it's, uh, I'm, I'm dealing now with a young uh, man in his late 20s who murdered somebody in New York City. And he's at Rikers, which is uh, not a, a piece of cake to be in. And he's in solitary confinement. And, uh, I went to see him about six months ago, and I've seen him three times now subsequently. And uh, the first time I saw him, it was behind glass, you know, with a with a phone. Um, subsequently, I've been able to see him without that, and you know, just at a little table in the in a section of the jail. Um, gotten to know him, but about three hours into my interview with him, the first time I asked him, and this is a guy who just killed somebody, pretty violently. Um, he had done a tour in Afghanistan, which is part of his story. So a lot of carnage, a um, um, lot of different things in his life. But I asked him towards towards the end of our time together, the first time I saw him, I said, you know, I said to him, I said, is there anything else that you could tell me that would give me a little bit more of an understanding about you? And I could tell, and this is a guy, that, again, just killed somebody. He looked away and he looked back at me a couple of times and he looked sad. I could just tell, you know, clinically I'm trained and also to, you know, see that. You Pick know. up on those cues. Pick up on the cues and his affect changed, you know, and he was, he, and he said, you know, took about 10 minutes, but then he finally said, yeah, there is one thing. And I said, what is that? And he says, well, between the ages of eight and nine, I was sexually abused. So I kind of took that in. Of course, I didn't share anything about what I had gone through, but I could identify. And I could tell that he was telling me the truth. And he said to me, he says, you're the first one I've ever told in my entire life. He's a 29-year-old man. 
So I said, well, look, um, next time I come, we'll talk some more about it. So subsequently, I went and met his parents down and they live in Maryland um, and their attorney told them this story that they were devastated by the murder. I mean, but they had never heard this story. Um, and they were more, even more devastated that their son, between the ages of eight and nine, that this could have happened. And they and they confirmed exactly what he had said, though, that he was being privately tutored by this fellow. He was in a specialized school for uh, young dyslexic uh, um, kids. Very, very bright kid, but but dyslexic. He was getting private tutored by this guy. And the parents confirmed exactly the, the time frame. So I'm putting the puzzle together and saying, you know what, this guy's telling me the truth. So I went back to see him, talked a little bit more about it. He told me the fellow's name. Um, told me a little bit more, but it was hard for him to talk about it. So now I said to him, well, I said, you know, I really have a duty to warn. And so I did some more research, and this teacher was still at this school 20 years later. Then I got permission from the authorities to be the investigator, even though I'm doing mitigation work for the defense team. And... Um, Third time went back. Um, now I'm able to see him, you know, you know, in a little room at Rikers. And he says to me, and, and you're only allowed to bring in a notebook with a pen. And you can't bring a notebook in with wire, you know, because of, you know, prisoners taking the wire out of the... So it was an old cosmopolitan, you know, sort of a notebook in school that we were in elementary school. Papers glued together. Yeah, papers glued. He says... Do you mind if I, instead of talking about it, do you mind if I just write out what happened? And I said, sure, that's okay. So for about 20 minutes, he wrote exactly what happened. And then he handed it to me, and I read it. And I just couldn't believe it, what he said, and what he, what this teacher forced him to do uh, to him, as far as you know, orally and all this, it's about the abuse. And um, and it just was so moving to me because I had gone through, you know, s different but 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 sexual abuse. And why was he able to tell me? You know, after twenty years, obviously he's in a contained spot. He's in jail. I mean, it's a tough place to be. He's looking at life imprisonment maybe 25 to 30 years with some possibility of parole, you know, with the possibility of being rehabilitated. But there's no question that this abuse, while not the reason for the murder, but certainly a piece of the puzzle of him psychologically, um, that he lived with this shame and this secret all these years, 20 years, never told anyone. So the the end of the story right now, the latest of the story is that I turned over um, a report to the authorities in Maryland. They're doing an investigation. This teacher's still at that school. And I have found out that there was knowledge of him in the Department of Social Services. Like years ago? Years ago. And 
So I don't know more than that other than I can speculate that nothing was done. Right. And he's still there. So how many more kids could he have abused? In 20 years, yeah. <laughs> so to this kid's credit who told me the courage that he shared, you know, again, he's looking at the potential of life imprisonment. He said to me as I was leaving, and he wrote this out, he said, you know, if I can help save one other kid, it was worth writing that out for you today. And that's amazing that that happened. So I realize that there's always hope. There's always the upside of being courageous and the upside of being truthful. And as as even as hard as it, as it was for him. And I can't, you know, I can't imagine being in prison for the rest of my life. Um, and it's tough to go there and see him, but something bonded, something brought us together, and it was that similar experience. Even though he doesn't know that I've gone through it. So you never told him? No. But I think, like, what you said before is, like, he could tell that you're, like, a straight shooter. I yeah. think it goes back to that exact thing we were just talking yeah. about yeah. of how he trusted a broken person and someone who's honest about, you know, yeah. what they've gone through. And he, yeah, and I think he, he felt a level of trust in me somehow on some level to say, you know what, I'm okay to share this with you, that I need to get, I need this, I need to let this out. Yeah. I think that's a credit to you, like I, like I said. Yeah. Um, as we wrap up the interview, what's your, like, advice to people who are at that point where they've been sexually abused uh, and haven't told anyone yet who might be listening to this? I think my, my, my advice would be um, try to reach deep within and find somebody you can trust and just share it. Um, don't take it to the grave with you. Um, there, unfortunately, many, many people do take the horror, um, the traumatic experience of sexual abuse to the grave with them. And um, many of whom uh, live lives that are complicated psychologically, that they have a hard time. And, uh, and my own experience is that my life has been so much richer and freer because I've been able to share the secret and my relationship with my wife, my children, my grandchildren. I can't imagine not having that today. And I've just been able to be blessed with being able to be honest and transparent. And I would say, you know, if anybody out there is listening who's gone through it, uh, whether in sport or not sports, um, find somebody that you can just trust and, you know, and begin to let it out. Um, and I think you'll find um, the benefit, as I have found, will be immeasurable. It'll be just a, a great gift if you can do that. Great. Uh, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Like, <laughs> are you on social media at all, or uh, very little? Uh, I can give you my uh, my email if that's. I mean, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, if you're cool with that, I'm cool. Or with you could that. have people email me, and I'll be the, yeah. Why don't the we buffer. do it? Let's do that. You be All the right. buffer. You and guys, uh, yeah. Anyone uh, listening to this who wants to yeah. uh, reach out to Mark, you yeah. can send me an email at Kevin K E V I N at headsandtails.org and that, I'll make the connection for that'd you That'd be guys. great. Kevin, thank you so much. It's been great to get to meet you and, and hear your story and thank you for the opportunity to share today. Anytime. One last question because I always yeah. ask this one. Uh, we, we may have touched on it before but what's your definition of toughness today? 
Definition of toughness today. Well, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think the definition of toughness today is actually, I would reverse it and say, you know, tough people also able to share their vulnerability. I respect people who, it's kind of like what you said before about, you know, being a broken person, you know. Tough people today are able to be able to be vulnerable and if they and that comes through that's actually even more tough and uh, and that's really uh, that's admirable to me that people are um, you know you know recently Joe Girardi <laughs> he shared to the world that he made a mistake and not going to that replay and and Girardi is a very calculating guy but he showed toughness by saying, you know what, I screwed up, I made a mistake. And his, his team rallied around him. You know, those young guys in the Yankees played for him. I think that's tough. I love that definition and, and the story to go along with it. Yeah. To me, that's uh, a, an example of extreme ownership, and that's being a true leader. So, yeah. uh, Mark, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story on the podcast and being vulnerable uh, even though it might have taken you a while to, to get to that point or to, to get that triggered that um, made you realize what was lingering deep down yeah. and uh, for the work that you do today to prevent you know what you went through for prevent others from going for, through what you went through um, so I really appreciate that thank you very much really, it's been a pleasure thanks Mark okay